Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 168. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 59 through 62 and follow with some thoughts about cancel culture. Psalm 59 begins with a call for... I need somebody, help, not just anybody, help. King Shaul has dispatched killers to stake out David's house to murder him. And so, as we read in 1 Samuel 19, only the quick thinking of Michal, Shaul's daughter, saves David from imminent death. But again, the connection between this incident in David's life and the psalm is tenuous at best. The only danger facing the poet is being murdered by words, as indicated in verses 7 and 8. Quote, they come back at evening, they mutter like dogs, they prowl around the town. Look, they speak out with their mouths and swords in their lips. For who would hear? And so the poet asks for appropriate punishment. Quote, do not kill them, lest my people forget. Through your force, make them wander, pull them down, our shield and master. The poet's plea figures prominently in medieval Christian theology, specifically as it comes to the Jews. Augustine of Hippo, a 4th century church father, grounded his doctrine of witness in this verse from the Psalms. The poet wants God not to destroy his enemies, but to keep them around, quote, lest my people forget. That is, they must live to bear witness to the poet's vindication and their ultimate defeat. Augustine understood the persistence and sad state of the Jews as bearing witness to the triumph of the church. And one can draw a direct connection between Augustine's doctrine and the many papal bulls condemning active persecution of the Jews. Psalm 60 moves from the singular to the plural as the poet expresses frustration with God. Quote, God, you have abandoned us, breached us. You are incensed. Restore us to life. It wasn't always like this. Quote, you once gave to those who fear you a banner for rallying because of the truth. And rivals that now threaten were once laughingstocks. Quote, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I fling my sandal. Over Philistia, I shout exultant. The poet wants a return to the old days when God would lead the fight. But in 132 CE, when a Jewish commander named Bar Kokhba rallied his troops against Rome, he would, according to Echa Rabbah, allude to this psalm, specifically to the bit about God not leading the army, not to bemoan their fate, but as a rallying cry. Tie-ho, pip-pip, your uncle! Bar Kokhba took it as a matter of course that God would not fight for them. They would have to fight for themselves. In fact, Bar Kokhba wanted God to step aside and stay out of the way and let the men fight for themselves. This was yet another reason why Bar Kokhba doesn't get really very much good press in the Talmud. Psalm 61 finds the poet wanting to be closer to God. Quote, Let me dwell in your tent for all time. Let me shelter in your wings hiding place. And as is customary to wish on behalf of the sitting monarch, quote, Days may you add to the days of the king. His years be like those of generations untold. Psalm 62 finds the poet in a good place for a change. Quote, Only in God is my being quiet. For him is my rescue. Only he is my rock and my rescue. My stronghold, I shall not stumble. 
And even with the dangers posed to him by individuals trying to take him down, he is undaunted. This is the message the poet wants to send us all. Quote, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our shelter. This applies both to the wicked and the righteous. Each will get what they deserve. Quote, for you requite a man by his deeds. And on that equitable note, here endeth the lesson. Poet is a complicated man, beset by enemies, desperate, plaintive, faithful, lyrical. But in this episode's portion, he is perturbed. Ostensibly, it's because he's trapped in his wife's house and the killers are outside, closing in. Except, as we said, in seven verses, it's clear that the grave threat he faces, what really sets him on edge, is all the muttering against him. All the people out there running around, talking trash about him, criticizing him, tearing him down, murdering him with words. In a way, the poet seems to be the target of cancel culture. Cancel culture, or call-out culture, first entered into the lexicon in 2016 when the title character of the web series, Joanne the Scammer, struggles to use an espresso machine. She fails, and in retaliation, she declares the entire thing is cancelled. According to Meredith Clark, professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, cancelling someone is an act of withdrawing from someone whose expression was once welcome or tolerated but no longer is. Not to get too Marxist, but cancel culture is also very much an expression of the transactional nature of capitalism, where not only credit cards or reservations get canceled, but now people and people as commodities are canceled too. And who's the most commodityist of all people? Yep, those folks on Instagram or Twitter. You know, who you once amplified or signal boosted via your social media, or you gave them money via Patreon, or you clicked on their YouTube videos. From now on, they no longer get that support. You're withholding your attention, and in the attention economy, where people earn livelihoods from your eyeballs and your clicks, you are cutting them off culturally and financially. Oh, damn! This is an important point. For people whose power is derived from the attention economy, cancellation is a potent cudgel. It's a sort of Damocles hanging over your head and a baseball bat in one. You say the wrong thing, and well... Sorry, you're cancelled. And I guess if you live by the sword, you die by it. But for politicians and titans of business, for brands and corporations, their fates are less precarious because their power exists in a realm outside of language and discourse. Logan Paul might influence fashion trends for a month while rolling out some inane YouTube clip, but Senator Rand Paul can block legislation in the U.S. Congress that could impact a generation. For the less conventionally powerful, the ground shifts constantly. I could list who's been canceled this week, the roster is ever-changing, with the lashing out, pre-lashes, backlashes, and backlashes to the backlashes, the post-lashes. Instagram influencers rise and fall, perhaps to rise again. YouTubers gain and lose notoriety. Movie and television stars fall in and out of favor, lose roles, go into exile only to return later, perhaps after a visit to Israel, chastened and penitent, or perhaps defiant. Cancel culture 
as I said at the outset, is relatively new. But the very human urge to ostracize someone who's taken things too far, who's said or done something too outrageous, it's been with us for a long time, for as long as humans have lived in groups. The Blacklist is a form of cancel culture. I spoke about the House Un-American Activities Committee, a committee of the U.S. House of Representatives back in episode 166. They were charged with investigating allegations of communist activity in the U.S. during the early years of the Cold War. Mr. Cole, what is the exact number of communists or subversives that are loose today in these defense plans? In addition to communists, alleged communists in the U.S. government, writers, directors, actors, activists, and union organizers were also dragged in to testify. They were goaded into snitching on their friends who would then be brought in and subjected to a similar grilling. Refuse to play along and you could be indicted for contempt of Congress and thrown into prison. Plead the fifth, invoking the right to avoid self-incrimination and you gave the impression that you were guilty and had something to hide, which would get your employer thinking that maybe they did have a communist in their midst, which often resulted in being fired and blacklisted from your chosen profession. Here's another example. Jackie Mason was an up-and-comer, a borscht belt comedian who managed to break into television. On October 18, 1964, he secured himself a spot on The Ed Sullivan Show. You know, the show that introduced the Beatles to America not eight months before. So, as Mason was working his way through his set, the audience was right there with him, and Ed Sullivan had moved off set and stood directly behind the camera. At some point, Sullivan held up two fingers to indicate that Mason only had two minutes left, and he should wrap it up. The show, after all, was running short because it had been preempted by a presidential speech. Mason responded by working his own fingers into the act, pointing at Sullivan with an index finger and his thumb. Sullivan thought Mason was giving him the finger. After the set, Sullivan, still angry from the perceived slight, told producers never to book Mason again. But the thing is... Mason had a six-appearance contract with The Ed Sullivan Show, a very lucrative six-appearance contract. Mason and Sullivan inevitably ended up in court, and though there was never any ruling on the substance of the matter, Sullivan asserted that Mason was unpredictable and could not be trusted. And because Sullivan had schlep, Mason was branded as unreliable, volatile, and obscene, and for that one minute of tomfoolery, Mason couldn't get work in TV for the next two decades. Another example. Andrew Clay Silverstein made a name for himself in the late 80s, early 90s with his brash, expletive-filled, homophobic, sexist, and oftentimes racist comedy routines. The persona he cultivated, Andrew Dice Clay, the Dice Man, slicked back his hair, wore leather, and chain-smoked cigarettes. Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating a curds and whey. Long came a spidey, sat down beside, he said, hey, what's in the bowl, bitch? Oh! Clay sold out Madison Square Garden on two consecutive nights in February of 1990. That's 38,000 people who paid not a small amount of money to experience his particular brand of insult comedy. Except that protests started to pile up. Nora Dunn, a cast member of Saturday Night Live, refused to perform the week Dice Clay guest-hosted later that year. Sinead O'Connor also canceled her appearance in protests. Screenings of his concert movies were met with growing protests that grew in number and volume. Theater chains didn't want the headache and canceled showings. What's different about these examples and what we're witnessing today with cancel culture is who's doing the canceling. 
During the Red Scare, Senator McCarthy and his willing enablers whipped Americans into a frenzy of fear and persecution. The U.S. Congress, quote, unquote, exposed individuals as communists, effectively canceling them, and then they just let nature take its course. But with Jackie Mason, Ed Sullivan, the tastemaker of TV in the 60s, burned Mason for a generation. And with the Dice Man, his own edginess, in a way, priced him out of the mainstream. People wanted to hear him swear and smoke and put down women, LGBTQ folks, and anyone else, really. But you can't really do that on network television during primetime when the kiddies are watching. Hollywood tried to launch him with the adventures of Ford Fairlane, but that movie was a critical and financial flop. Although it did win Clay the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Picture, film studios would never risk their fortunes on him again. In each of these instances, the powers that be cast offenders out for their speech acts. The people with power made this decision for the people without power, and they decided who would be acceptable and who would be canceled. Except that cancel culture today works a bit differently. In cancel culture, the individual viewer has agency. People have limited power over what is presented to them. They don't get to decide who sits on the couch on late night talk shows or whose film projects get you know, greenlit by major Hollywood studios, nor do they decide who gets a platform on social media. At least, quote unquote, grown-ups make decisions about TV and movies. Social media platforms are barely regulated which provokes people into taking matters into their own hands, doing the work that YouTube or Jack Dorsey at Twitter won't do, canceling and deplatforming deplorables. Now I've heard the criticisms of cancel culture, the thoughtful, measured critiques, like isolating people does not undo the harm they've done. Social media's speed of transmission also moves people into acting rashly. Folks are getting canceled even before details of an incident are nowhere close to being confirmed. The mob moves quickly and fiercely. But then there's the whinging and complaining of basically cisgender straight men who bemoan how they can't say anything anymore without the woke police coming after them. This list is also growing daily, and the people on that list who are beginning to emerge from the shadow of their cancellations, past and present, they're growing increasingly defiant. Comedians on their comeback tours will insist on phone-free events so no one can record what they say. To this, I say, only bigots complain about wokeness, and only cowards are scared of being held accountable for what they say. Actually, you know, George Carlin really nailed it in 1990 with his take on Andrew Dice Clay. I would defend to the death his right to do everything he does. The thing that I, that I find unusual, and it's, you know, it's not a criticism so much, but his targets are underdogs, and comedy traditionally has picked on people in power, people who abuse their power. Uh, women and gays and immigrants are kind of, to my way of thinking, underdogs. And, um, you know, he ought to be careful because he's Jewish. And a lot of the people who want to pick on these kind of groups, the Jews are on that list a little further. You got women, gays, gypsies, blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly you find Jews. And, and Andrew, suddenly Andrew's arrested. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I mean, he, obviously he should do what he wants. And uh, Why does he get away with it, do you think, then? Well, because we have never laughed at jokes about the Well, poor. he's appealing. I think he's appealing largely. I think his core audience 
are young white males who are threatened by these groups. I think a lot of these guys aren't sure of their manhood because that's a problem when you're going in through adolescence. You know, am I really? Am I, could I be? I hope I'm not one of them. And the women who assert themselves and are competent are a threat to these men. And so are immigrants in terms of jobs. And, and uh... So when the poet says, quote, they mutter like dogs, they prowl round the town. Look, they speak out with their mouths and swords in their lips. Who are the they? They are not nobody. These mutterers and slanderers feature in almost all of the 40 psalms of personal lament, 29 of which we've read so far. And once we determine who they are, is their mutterings against the poet punching up or punching down? So let's start with the first and obvious candidate. If we take the psalms and their superscriptions at face value, then the poet is David, and the slanderers are folks in King Shaul's court, or Benjaminite or monarchist wags who seek to discredit and disparage the young Judahite upstart. Many of the psalms of lament begin with a Davidic superscription connecting the psalm with a specific event in the life of David the renegade who would be king. In which case, though the poet laments an event in his past, the folks slandering him at that time represented the powers that be. They were trying to maintain their position of authority and influence in the court of Shaul and sought to tear down David because he threatened their cushy jobs and pensions. David, on the other hand, is a nobody, a shepherd's son, who acquitted himself well in combat, someone who rose through the ranks due to his bravery and success. They are definitely punching down, and for this, God should hear David's plea and definitely cancel them. But if we flip it and consider that the poet is King David and folks are criticizing his decisions as king, then they are definitely punching up, in which case the poet is canceled and YouTube should demonetize him and Twitter should deplatform him immediately. But as we've said throughout this podcast's foray into the Psalms, the book of Psalms contains neither superscription nor colophon, and nowhere in the Hebrew Bible is there any indication that David wrote it. As I said when we first started in the Psalms on episode 153, 73 of 150 Psalms are designated Le David, but what that term means is uncertain. Le David, to David. And no other biblical book to a historic personality ever involved the use of the Lamed formula. So that leaves us with the poet as simply the poet railing against the mob who speak against him. And so, in the spirit of a more thoughtful and introspective cancel culture, I will say nothing and reserve judgment until I get more details. This will probably take a while. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 169, when we continue in Psalms with chapter 63 through 66.